1: Welcome to Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Uh, first, uh, a quick announcement, which is actually pretty exciting uh, for me. I recently uh, made a pretty big career shift. Uh, as you know, for a long time, I was a fellow at the Ayn Rand Center for Individual Rights, focusing on energy issues, and I'm, I'm still focusing on energy issues, and I'm still very friendly with the Ayn Rand Center for Individual Rights. Uh, but I actually decided to start my own outfit called the Center for Industrial Progress, which is a, a project I'm really excited about. Now, since this is a show about our topics and our guests and not my own cr- career trajectory, if you guys want to learn more, check out this month's newsletter, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Energy. Just go to the new www.alexepstein.com. we got a really cool page there. It's easy to sign up for the newsletter, and there's tons more content. That said, let's get to today's show. Uh, Our guest today is Dr. Patrick Michaels. Uh, Now, Dr. Michaels is someone I've been following for a long time on the issue of global warming and climate change. And I've always admired him because he seems to be, and and is, to all of my knowledge, an extremely, extremely knowledgeable person on the science of these issues. But he also takes a broader perspective and looks at the economics and the policy of these issues. He also happens to be an extremely good lecturer and teacher, and therefore an extremely good candidate for a radio guest. And to top that off, he has a new book that I read called Climate Climate Coup, Government's Invasion of Global, uh, I'm sorry, Global Warming's Invasion of Our Government and Our Lives, which I think is a really valuable book. So we're going to have on Patrick Michaels today to discuss that issue. Now I have to warn you, today's show is not going to be our technically best. Uh, I was moving offices at the time we recorded the interview, so the interview content is top notch. I think you'll be super excited by it. We really go into a lot of depth on these issues, but at some point, it sounds like there's some kind of accident happening in the background. I promise you, no one got hurt. It's all good, so enjoy the interview. Sorry for all the technical difficulties. On the other side, we'll have our interview with Dr. Patrick
0: Michael. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.
1: We're joined now by Dr. Patrick Michaels to talk about his new book, Climate Coup. Dr. Michaels, welcome to Power Hour.
0: Nice to be with you, Alex.
1: So tell us, I mean, I, I've read the book and, and I thought it was really valuable. That's why I'm, I'm bringing you on. But, but for those who haven't, what is Climate Coup about, and as someone who's written numerous books on the subject of global warming, what's distinctive and new about this one?
0: Well, Climate Coup has a subtitle, Global Warming's Invasion of Our Government and Our Lives, and it describes at the many levels of our political life how the issue uh, of global warming and consequent regulation and expenditure has filtered into places where you would not think it would have gone. For example, it's in the Defense Department, it's in our trade relationships, it's obviously in the educational system, and it has contributed to a corruption of the scientific process. That's a pretty pervasive thing.
1: And so in terms of what's behind this, I I find it interesting in the title that it's Global Warming's Invasion of Our Government and uh, our lives, because when I was reading it, what struck, um, what struck me was the extent to which government, in a sense, had a causal role. So I'm curious how you see yep. the relationship of government involvement in science on the one hand, um, and policy, obviously, and then this, this global warming movement.
0: Well, what really has happened here is that this should not have happened if our government functioned in a constitutional manner. But because there is no way that our national legislature would impose uh, massive changes in automobiles, um, implicit energy taxes, et cetera, that would be very unpopular. What has happened instead is that the legislative branch has ceded large amounts of power to the executive branch and to the courts uh, rather than make uncomfortable votes. Roger Polan, constitutional scholar from Cato Institute, uh, has an excellent essay on that, which I, I put as the first chapter in the book because it shows how something happened that should not have happened given our constitutional form of government.
1: Uh, when I was reading the book, I in my mind, I kind of divided uh, the, the big topics into into two categories. So I'm going to – well, I'll ask you if, you if you think those are accurate, but then I'm going to ask you a bunch of more questions and, and dive deep into them. Um, but they all center around what I'll call the establishment view of global warming, and and this is what we're told every day in the media. And, and I would say it's something like science has demonstrated that human combustion of fossil fuels is causing – Catastrophic global warming. And this book addresses that, um, at least in my reading, from two really interesting perspectives. One is the destructive role of government in shaping that establishment view and causing it to be an establishment view. And then the other is the destructive role of government policies seeking to implement that view. Do you think those are, it's an accurate characterization of points that come out in the book?
0: I think that's quite accurate. What? has happened is that um, if the government defines something as a problem and then begins to throw large amounts of money at it, I guarantee you it's a problem in the eyes of the political community and in the eyes of the recipients of the largesse. It may not be a problem in reality. And you you touched on the right word uh, about the, quote, establishment view of this. You burn fossil fuel and you get a catastrophic, and I underline the word catastrophic, global warming. I I think the actual reality of this issue is you burn fossil fuel and you get some global warming. The problem is that by portraying it in the catastrophic terms, that leads to ultimately to policies, of course, they're not policies that our legislature would want to put forth because they would be held responsible for them, but rather policies that are put into play uh, by the executive branch and by the courts and I, I think that you have a fair characterization of this
1: yeah and and i appreciate you bringing up um your own view of 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 global warming because it's you know it's you know, you're you're known as not having The establishment view. And that that brings me to um, my next set of questions, which is about this issue of how has the government been involved in shaping the establishment view? And just to play devil's advocate from the perspective I think many people come to this from is people have this idea of scientists, you know, the quote unquote scientists that we hear all agree about catastrophic global warming as these individual independent scientific theoreticians to whom the facts and conclusions are obvious. So these guys are just looking at reality, they're looking at the facts, the conclusions fall readily and therefore you hear this talk of these large numbers agreeing in unison and it would seem like well it would be quite a statistical anomaly if these guys were all lying or something. So that's I think that's how people perceive it and part of what your book is doing is explaining the role of government in shaping this quote consensus and even our view that it is a, a consensus.
0: I think that lying is far too strong a word. I think rather what's operating here is good old fashioned public choice theory uh, people seeking their own best interest. I can give you an example of the way the process works. <clears throat> Imagine if I submitted a paper to a scientific journal that said, yes, this is a terrible problem. Well, The reviewers are going to be people who are experts in the field of this is a terrible problem. And therefore, they are going to find themselves in agreement with it. And certainly, uh, um, it would would invoke the the legitimization of the view of it as a terrible problem. Now, suppose I sent a paper that said instead, well, yes, this is real, but it's probably overblown, and we really have to back off on our predictions of disaster. I guarantee you that the reviewers of that paper would give it an extremely hard time because it threatens the self-interest of the reviewers. And it's not just individuals that are caught up in this mess. It's our educational institutions. Our universities are essentially dependent upon federal science funding for their existence right now. And there are so much of this money has gotten in the global warming kitty that the universities now become purveyors of the catastrophic point of view and they try to silence the non-catastrophic point of view. It's all logical. It has nothing to do with conspiracies. It has to do with people working in their own best interest.
1: Uh, That raises a lot of interesting questions, but first, just for people who don't know, could you uh, give a quick quick encapsulation of public choice theory that you're referring to?
0: I, I think I can. Best do it by example. That seems to be the best way to do it. Suppose we had a congressional hearing, and a, a, a senator, an ambitious senator, that was querying the administrator of NASA. And he said, uh, I could <laughs> do my Al Gore imitation, but I won't. Maybe I could. I oh, know.
1: please, please do. I've heard it.
0: <clears throat> uh, Mr. Administrator, scientists have told us that global warming is the most important problem confronting mankind could your agency effectively use several billion more dollars per year to study this problem of course the administrator must say yes because behind him in the room are all his subheads for his agency and they have not not combs in their pockets but knives If he said no, the administrator would be out of there in a heartbeat. And then he goes to the administrators and say, okay, we've got all this new money. How are we going to spend it? Which administrator is going to say, well, my group of people thinks that this isn't that much of a problem? Not one of them. They're going to say, okay, we will spend it on this area, this problem, this problem, this problem. And then they go to their worker bee scientists and say, we need proposals from each and every one of you on all this new funding that we've gotten. What scientist is going to send in the proposal that says that this is not much of a problem? That person's not going to get funded. And finally, the public, the the money buys publications and manuscripts in the refereed literature. As we mentioned earlier in in this discussion, what scientist is going to send in the paper that says this is not that much of a problem? He knows he's going to get creamed if he does. That's public choice in action. People interacting with the political process, For their own rational self-interest, is that a reasonable explanation for you?
1: Uh, I mean, I I think that definitely uh, captures a dynamic. The term "rational self-interest," I mean, that's uh, that's a term. (laughs) Ayn Rand, in particular, was one of the popularizers of. And I, I mean, the thing—it's definitely dealing with the incentive. I think of it. I mean, in terms of how I've benefited from studying it, it's it's thinking about the incentives, particularly of government actors, which whom people often ascribe this infinitely altruistic, um, right, exactly. impartial perspective to. And it's helpful to realize uh, they it, it, it wouldn't be good, in my view, if they had that perspective, but these are human beings with certain motivations and certain incentives. And to understand how a given policy is going to play out or how it originated, you need to be aware of those incentives. Otherwise, you're going to be clueless about the process. Exactly.
0: I tell you, Alex, it's very interesting. You know, Ayn Rand really had a thing about government funding of science and how it would corrupt science. You you may recall in Atlas Shrugged, she had the State Science Institute, which um, because of public choice influences, she didn't call them that, but because because of public choice influences would lead the country down technological roads where it should not go uh, and would try and suppress certain discoveries. Um, she basically predicted what's happening now.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so to go back to what's happening now, there is there. I, I can certainly see, and I, I think it's very apparent. You also wrote another book on this called uh, Meltdown. I forget what what's the subtitle of Meltdown? The predictable
0: distortion of global warming by scientists, politicians, and the media.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if people are interested in more of this, that's definitely definitely a good
0: the concept. Is predictable book. distortion.
1: You know? Yeah, I mean, pre- predictable in, in some sense, but in some sense it seems, it seems unpredictable. And even if, if people will say, okay, now I, I assume the example you were bringing up with uh, that Al Gore imitation, which I, I once again enjoyed, I assume you're having him talking to James Hansen. Is that correct?
0: No, I would be Administrator Golden uh, for NASA. Hansen is not an administrator of NASA. But it is, it is a fact that – see, Al Gore has a thing about propaganda and the media. And he has always had this vision that there would be a dedicated cable channel that simply showed an image of the earth <laughs> and to get a daylight image of the earth in rotation. A satellite has to be sent up to a very odd place called the Lagrangian point. And when Gore got this idea, he dragged the administrator of NASA in front of Congress and said, how much would it cost to put up this satellite so that we can always look at the Earth? And, of course, the administrator named a number, and it was not a small number. Fortunately, it got killed. People realized that uh, uh, it, was, it was kind of silly, I do admit that I wrote a an op-ed about it called Baying at the Earth, as opposed to Baying at the Moon. <laughs> it did go down.
1: Um, so, j- just, um, well, since I mentioned James Hansen, I don't know if everyone knows yeah. about him, but tell us a little bit about who Hansen's James Hansen is. James is a central
0: figure in this. <clears throat> Jim Hansen went to graduate school in Iowa and studied under James Van Allen, who discovered the... Van Allen belts of ionizing radiation over the Earth, a rather famous person. And uh, Hansen did his doctoral thesis on the darkness of the moon during a lunar eclipse and how it was related to the fact that there had been a big volcano in 1963, Mount Agung, go off in the tropics that put junk in our stratosphere, and so the Earth... Uh, acquired a different color, a different reflectivity, and that was reflected in the earth shine, which is what the moon uh, reflects when it's an eclipse. Now, what that all has to do with climate is a little bit of a stretch, except it's known that volcanoes cool the surface temperature for a couple of years. Well, Hansen was hired to be the principal scientist for the Goddard Institute for Space Science, uh, or Space Studies, which is really uh, just simply a climate modeling group that lives on Broadway in New York City, believe it or not. And uh, you you can tell what I'm trying to tell you is this guy really didn't have a lot of training in climate science at all. And so I don't think he was really, um, what I should say, daunted by the nuances that most climate scientists are. And he very glibly predicted that carbon dioxide Uh, would create a massive warming of the atmosphere. And so, eventually, he got in front of Congress on June 23, 1988, and said that there was a strong cause-and-effect relationship between the current climate, which in that time was was very hot in the summer of 1988. There was a big drought on the current climate and human alteration of the atmosphere. He lit the bonfire of the greenhouse vanities, if you know what I mean, and set the public choice machine in motion with that testimony. It later came out that Senator Tim Wirth, uh, and probably with the cooperation of the witness, uh, decided the night before to open the windows in the hearing room. What that does is that disables the air conditioning. And so therefore the room was blazingly hot. This was the first example that I knew of, of the government (laughs) creating a distorting environment in order to push a policy and a program forward a distorting scientific environment stage managing the presentation of this to be in a very hot room where everyone would be uncomfortable are you uncomfortable with that alex
1: uh... i would say a little more than that uh... so with have you seen well, the I, I like, news from exact- today
0: there's a story going around today Okay. Um, and I, I can't get to the bottom of it, and I can't allege the whether it's true or not. But a, uh, a I think a geological survey scientist in Alaska has been put on administrative leave. Um, remember the photographs of the drowning polar bears that yep. Al Gore used so much. Uh, the, the back rumor, and I'm again I'm not saying this is true or not, is that those photographs were faked. So this continues. Uh, time after time.
1: So, with with the example of Hanson, you mentioned that he's being put into this, uh, you know, extremely high and important, and obviously consequential position, exactly. especially given the nature nature of. Even though he's not qualified, and it, it reminds me hey, of. Uh, go ahead.
0: I said, but as we mentioned earlier in this this broadcast. He's behaving in a totally predictable fashion. Ayn Rand would predict exactly what happened. He would produce a computer model. It's, it's, you know, it's not hard to model pretty much anything these days, okay? I, used to, I was at the University of Virginia for 30 years, and I had a class where by about eight weeks students could model pretty much anything. And then he produced a computer model that predicted dramatic warming. Uh, based upon one of one or two scenarios for carbon dioxide emissions uh, after the after the time of the model, which was 1988, uh, and that model, of course, fueled all kinds of policy. Now, I can tell you, we now have 22 years, 23 years after that testimony, and we can see how well that model did, and it didn't. It predicted way too much warming. Uh, ironically. Uh, People have been very reluctant to admit this. This is a problem. This should be everywhere, that this was wrong, but it's nowhere.
1: So um, Hanson reminds me of, of one of my favorite, especially um, your point about his mediocrity might be too strong a word or it might be too he's weak not, a word. He's not but-
0: mediocre. He just, he just doesn't seem to be real sophisticated to me. Uh, I mean... It, a lot of these these bombshells that we see coming out of climate science. Uh, another one is, is the hockey stick by Michael Mann, the temperature history that shows no change for 900 years and all of a sudden jumps up. Uh, what he did was he analyzed a massive number of paleo climate indicators together. I can tell you that just about every graduate student in climate science has the idea to do that, and probably the major professor says no. You're going to get something that looks like a signal, but it will actually be noise because the variables are so incommensurate with each other. Uh, And, you know, what happens is the bombshell guys in this, just go ahead and do it. They bowl their way through despite the fact that, you know, the people superior to them may be saying, hey, you ought to be a little bit careful. And they get the results that they know that they're going to get. Uh, And they acquire notoriety and the policy machine goes forward.
1: And why don't people rebel against this bombshell thing? I mean, you, you'd imagine no in other it. scientific fields,
0: there is no well, incentive. Well, so th- the problem is that. Well, there is that brings so much me back to the- on the other side, that you're not going to get anywhere with a massive rebellion.
1: I'm very, I'm very convinced that the incentives are a huge part of it. But it seems like, I, I want to give a devil's advocate um, analogy. So imagine it was in the field of physics and just the basic laws of mechanics or electro, electromagnetism or something that everyone, you know, every everyone knew. I mean, you couldn't get a set of of uh, government incentives that uh, you couldn't just get a whole community to go in a completely different direction or, or in the evolution, maybe evolution is better. You couldn't I don't think you could get the whole scientific community to sort of be on board with creationism no matter who was in power.
0: Correct. But that's not it's not as um, public a discussion. It certainly doesn't have the policy implications that global warming does it doesn't have the massive amount of financial incentives being traded around remember that at the last big climate meeting in copenhagen the developing world demanded a trillion dollars from the developed countries because of climate change when when those amounts of money are being tied to an issue there is no way that it is going to be portrayed in an even-handed fashion
1: And part of what I assume is that because the science never really developed in an objective way and because it's not something that we know nearly – as well as the basic laws of electromagnetism, it's much more uh, vulnerable to this sort of thing. And also to, I mean, from my perspective, coming at it from a philosophical perspective, people are very predisposed to believe that technology and industrialization um, and the pursuit of profit cause bad things.
0: Yeah, that's one of the weird things in our society. Uh, And and the reality is that, that the pursuit of profit is what's causing this issue to be portrayed the way it is uh actually it's not the pursuit of profit, but the pursuit of other people's profits. You know, again, this issue uh you know might be called Atlas Shrugged if we really wanted it to be
1: Yeah, I mean there there are uh so I think between uh, you know, me and Dr. Michaels, anyone who hasn't read Atlas Shrugged or reread Atlas Shrugged recently, uh Definitely read it. If if you if you you read uh, Pat's book or books, and you you read Atlas, you really see how it has a has a really good sense of these different dynamics. Of the, their ideas really mean in action, and and how they get influenced, and how if they touch something as as sacred and delicate and as important as science, they can just completely uh, corrupt.
0: Well, that's the way it works, Alex, unfortunately. And I'll tell you what, we can look at other examples. Um, I think one example that's kind of interesting uh, and is really somewhat analogous because there are fairly large amounts of money associated with it is the Department of Agriculture's um, many iterations of what you're supposed to eat. Um, You may... um, Recall that um, the so-called basic food pyramids that that appear from time to time for a long time pushed dairy products. And I think that there are a lot of physicians and nutritional physicians and nutritionologists that would tell you that really adults probably shouldn't be consuming that many high-fat dairy products. Now, why was the Department of Agriculture so incentive to push this? Well, because we are a nation that is awash in milk and cheese because we subsidize it. And we have a department that oversees that subsidization. That's the United States Department of Agriculture. And so, therefore, you get a food pyramid that for decades pushed large amounts of dairy products. Now, it has since backed off because it takes it, – it, the, the – um, instability can only last so long. It can last a long time. Uh, it, but it's since back off on that. Fine, why? Because agriculture's got a new subsidy called ethanol. So we don't have to push dairy products that much anymore, do we?
1: Well, there's, I mean, yeah, there's grain. I mean, there's grain for, for burned for fuel, and then there's grain for crops. Right. Um, the,
0: the primary producer I'm is gonna, the producer uh, of grain. And as long as there's a market for that that's propped up to keep the price high, the primary producers lobby, which is in this case is actually the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, is going to try and keep it that way. Would that not be the case?
1: Let's talk a little bit about the policy side of the book, which the book has a lot of interesting things to say about Um Continually, when we hear about global warming policies and their necessity, there are many claims that are made about how this is going to prevent all kinds of deaths and how it's going to improve the quality of life. What does Climate Coup have to say about those claims?
0: Well, first of all, let's talk about these policies. In uh, June uh, 26, 2009, the House passed the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill which would reduce our carbon dioxide emissions 83 percent below 2005 levels by 2050, that's 38 and a half years from today. Now, disregarding the fact that no one has any idea how to do that, that would allow the average American to have the carbon dioxide emissions of the average American in 1867. Now. That's before, essentially before electricity, before the Internet, before the car, before the electric light, you name that. Uh, that's the problem. Is no, We can always legislate things, but we don't know how to get there. All we know is the cost would be enormous. And so, fortunately, that did not pass through the Senate. But that's basically the policy goal, is to reduce emissions that much. And I think most people recognize that the only way you can get there is to make carbon-based energy so expensive that people will simply not use it. Uh, The problem is that there is not another substitute, not at this point in time, and it would take a long time to develop them because we have no idea what they would be. It's certainly not solar energy and windmills. It's not ethanol. And for some reason, the same people who are concerned about global warming don't like nuclear power. So what does that leave you? it leaves you freezing in the dark.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's one thing that never, uh, that it's very rarely emphasized. I mean, it, this whole uh crusade is cloaked in concern for human life and yet there is there's no recognition of how much improvement human life to human life fossil fuels have made and what a disaster the alternatives would be. And and in the book you there you discuss things like, well, um uh, talk a little bit about heat related deaths, because I found that a really yeah. interesting one.
0: That's that's a really interesting one to say the least. Uh here here comes incentives again. I think, I, I think Ayn Rand would have loved this issue if she'd have been around for it, let me tell you. Okay, the, the rumor, the, the, the um, catastrophic view is that global warming will dramatically increase heat-related deaths, particularly in our cities. Now, this is an interesting hypothesis, and it's a testable one. The hypothesis states that over time, as cities warm up, people will slowly fry and die. Let's test that hypothesis because, you know, cities have been warming up, and they will warm up, with or without global warming. They warm up from what's known as their urban heat island effect. The bricks, the buildings, and the pavement impede the flow of air at night and retain heat. So, in fact, here in downtown Washington, it is several degrees warmer than it is in the surrounding Virginia countryside. I I think that the urban heat island here might be as much as 3 degrees Celsius or 5 degrees Fahrenheit. And so these cities are warming up. Uh, Is the amount of heat-related death increasing? Obviously, when there's a heat wave in a city that has urban warming, it's a greater heat wave than it would have experienced before and certainly greater than the surrounding countryside. So Robert Davis from University of Virginia and I looked at that, and we discovered something that I don't think will shock you but may shock other people, It's that as heat waves become more frequent, there's less heat-related death. Why? Because people adapt to things that they can anticipate. And in fact, uh, while the heat-related death is supposed to, according to the United Nations, affect largely the elderly and the very young, the two cities in the United States that have virtually no heat-related death are Tampa, (laughs) And Phoenix, both of those cities, have the oldest population distributions in the country. And so simply uh, scaring people with this puts forth a hypothesis that can be tested. And as you might suspect, it works out that where there is an incentive for the political process to keep people from dying on the street, uh, fewer people die on the street from heat.
1: Well, an incentive in the market, too, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. There's this wonderful substance, you know. There was a massive heat, heat wave in France in 2003, uh, and there are a number of reasons why uh, probably 37,000 people died in France during that summer, um, many of which have to do with the fact that the heat wave really hit during August, and that's when the professional class goes to the beach, goes on vacation for a month and leaves the old folks at, in the non-air-conditioned home, and that contributed a lot. There was there was more mortality than there should have been given the temperature. There was massive amount of excess mortality. Well, in 2006, uh, the great French heat wave. Oh, wait a minute! You didn't hear about the great French heat wave in 2006. Well, it was pretty much as large as the French heat wave in 2003, but the number of deaths was far fewer than would have been expected from that amount of heat. Why? Because of technology and adaptation. All of a sudden, the French, who thought American air conditioning was a cheap and crude invention, thought it might be a good idea to trundle on down to Walmart or Carrefour in Europe and get an air conditioning unit uh, for the old folks' windows. And so we adapted. They adapted. That's what happens. So the result of global warming is that uh, it will export heat-related death northward uh, to cities where, where massive heat waves aren't that common but pretty soon it will export it off the map because as you as you probably know from looking at a map of the world there aren't very many large cities north of 60 degrees latitude or south of 60 degrees latitude and so what global warming will do is it will squeeze heat related death off the map in our cities.
1: Interesting I recommend I I remember I heard you give a talk in which you mentioned those two uh Heat waves and, and how they were different, and ever since then, I must have heard on three or five occasions some politician bringing up the heat wave of 2003 as this decisive example of the the gray or you know uh, hot future we have to look forward to, and how it's just how we need to act immediately and cut off all the fuels that fuel the air conditioning.
0: In fact, what the 2003 heat wave showed us is the future. It's that people will adapt to environmental change that they can anticipate. And so there is no reason to impoverish them, which will make it much harder to go down to Walmart and get that air conditioner.
1: Now, the book also has an interesting chapter, which covers things like hunger and the fate of the poor, which we often hear uh, global warming will make this much worse. And that's why it's so urgent that we make uh, dramatic cuts in in fossil fuels. Tell us about that chapter.
0: Well, Inder Goklani wrote that. Inder is a very, very smart uh, economist. And he assumed the absolute worst case scenarios for global warming uh, in the developing world. Uh, and he come to the conclusion that the developing world will grow economically so much in the next 100 years that it will have absolutely no problem adapting even to the worst case scenarios. You, you, people forget. people don't like to remember for some reason how much we have grown in terms of economic development and real per capita income in the last 100 years. Well, the United States in 1900 was the developing world. Uh, Now the developing world is in South Asia, in China, and in Africa. And it's perfectly reasonable to assume that they, over the course of this 100 years, will acquire the per capita wealth that we acquired over the last 100 years. Unless there's something inherently wrong with the people there, and I don't think there's anybody that wants to say that.
1: Well, there. I mean, there's also the policy. I mean, the, 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 there's the issue of policy. I mean, the United States uh, has had a historically unique policy, and also, so yeah, for sure, if you have the right policy. But of course, the whole global warming movement is against it. But so I remember he made that That's point about. Right. About, but he, the point, he makes the point about the standard of living going up and, and projections about that. To me, that, my guess is that that will be true, I mean, to a major extent. But there's also just points about um, the role of – I think I remember he's making points about just the role of fossil fuels in agriculture and the wrongness of thinking that um, the major thing one should be concerned about, to the extent one's concerned about the third world or the developing world, is, is the increase in heat.
0: Yes, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that um, you know, ad- modern agriculture is fueled by carbon-based fuels, uh, you have to find something to uh, give you enough energy to make fertilizer, which is a very energy intensive process. Uh, and if you take that away, what you do is you actually um, encourage malnutrition. You encourage all the things that you don't want, and then you blame them on global warming. when in fact, um, agricultural systems that are highly technologized tend to be relatively insulated from environmental variability. Now, that, that does not apply in a year that it doesn't rain. No rain equals no grain. But in <laughs> years where there are, uh, where the climate is between uh, large limits uh, around the normal, we see yields, crop yields, that's the amount produced per, per acre, increasing and increasing at a constant rate. I don't care what you read in the New York Times a couple of months ago, the rate of increase in world crop yields in recent decades is the same as it was in decades pr- prior to recent decades. It's constant, and that is a result of technology. Now, if you want to make that technology more expensive, if you want to make it uh, uh, more difficult to produce fertilizer in large quantities, you will, in fact, stop that rate of increase in global food crop yield, and that would make food very, very expensive and create all the effects that you think would be caused by global warming from economic mismanagement because of global warming. Uh,
1: As the last threat from global warming policy or the last distortion, uh, I have to have you talk a little bit about the security and defense element, because I, I found this just shocking to the extent to which pseudoscience has permeated there.
0: Oh, the, yes, the Office of Naval Analysis, uh, which is a very prestigious group of generals, etc. Some are former generals, some are not. Uh, they decided that global warming is a, quote, threat multiplier, end quote. That's the, that's the buzzy word today, particularly in the developed world, the developing world, and that it would create, uh, it would make certain states unstable. Well, look, the reason that we have something called markets is to prevent things called wars over resources. It's, better, it's much easier to purchase something with a coin than it is to shoot somebody or a large number of people in order to get what they have. Um, here, the military is, I think, behaving in a remarkably 19th century fashion. The claim would be that if Zimbabwe did not have food, because of global warming, itself a very debatable proposition, that Zimbabwe would become unstable. Well, yeah, that would be the case if it were managed to the point that its currency could buy nothing, which is the way that it is now. (laughs) But if it were managed to the point that it had a viable currency, then all the Zimbabweans would do would be to buy food on the open market. You don't need – global warming has nothing to do with this policy. It has to do with corrupt – Kleptocracies versus regimes that are responsible to their people. And in that case, you don't really care what the climate does because you're going to develop ways and markets to deal with it.
1: Uh, and in addition to that, I remember that there were just these absurd projections of, what was it, England getting to the temperature or Siberia getting to the temperature of England? Which Which one was it?
0: Yes, yes, yes. There was a famous Department of Defense analysis a few years ago that uh, had this scenario in it, which it claimed was plausible, that by the year 19, uh, 2019, which is uh, seven and a half years from now, that England would have the climate of Siberia, uh, and then it uh, decided to do a global policy exercise based upon that assertion. Well, that was that was how this is, how public choice gets into this issue and destroys it. Um, or destroys reason. What happened is the Defense Department uh, hired two consultants who know nothing about climate and admitted they know nothing about climate and put together a scenario made of whole cloth in order to have the Defense Department have the rationale to say, look, we need to have our budgets raised because of the unforeseen threat from climate change. That's unfortunately the way it worked.
1: Yeah, I think that, that example really... Uh, stuck in my mind, and and um, those of you who read the book, it's it's just it's just shocking how you see that this government distortion of the whole scientific process and of scientific conclusions can lead the government, it can lead any entity, including our defense, which obviously needs science in certain ways, to act on the most absurd uh, scenarios and demand huge amounts of money and potentially make very bad uh, decisions. <laughs>
0: Is the way that Ayn Rand predicted the State Science Institute would function?
1: Yeah, again, that book Atlas Shrugged, I can't can't, uh, recommend enough. So we have to wrap up, but is there any uh, closing thought you have and also uh, tell people how they can learn more about your work?
0: Well, uh, you know, first of all, nothing in this book implies a conspiracy. It merely is people behaving rationally given what is. Uh, And uh, given what is global warming, in fact, would invade large areas of our government and our lives. Uh, Part of the what is is that our legislative branch has ceded so much of its power to the executive branch, which rules by fiat, Uh, and the science has become a federal monopoly, basically, so that we have essentially a state science institute subject to the distortions that one would expect that to be subject to. Anyway... That's pretty much the nature of the thesis in the book, and it's uh, available at Amazon for a nice price. It's also available from the Cato Institute, www.cato.org, and I hope people will enjoy it uh, and just realize how pervasive this issue has become despite the fact that it's never really been legislated.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much uh, for being on the program, and we will stay in touch.
0: Thanks, Alex. Hour Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Thanks
1: again to Dr.
0: Patrick Michaels for
1: being on the show. Now, I think the biggest question for me to wrap up that's been raised is, what are the dynamics that cause a highly dubious claim, such as the claim which I and Dr. Michaels also regard as dubious, that the burning of fossil fuels is catastrophic, and we stress catastrophic for human life, what can cause such a claim to become perceived as scientifically proven? That is, if we're right about this, how is it that so many people seem to disagree? And Dr. Michaels raised the issue of of public choice theory, which in this context I think means a study of the, especially the monetary incentives of the various political and institutional actors. And that is a, a crucial aspect. Um, but I think during the interview, you saw that there was a little, um, tension is a little bit too strong a word to put on it, but um, I was pushing for, Is there? are there other explanations? Is it just money? Is it just power? It seems to me like there's like there's more stuff. And in this connection, um, Dr. Michaels brought up Ayn Rand, and obviously anyone who listens to the show knows uh, I'm an enormous advocate of Ayn Rand's ideas and of of reading her work. Um, So in that connection, I I want to really highly recommend Ayn Rand's essay The Establishing of an Establishment. Uh, Now it's in her collection of essays, Philosophy Who Needs It, and I think you'll be blown away by an essay written uh, about four decades ago, how much it explains, not just about the climate change consensus, which it's not even about, but it, it 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 appears it could have been written for the whole climate change consensus, and it really applies to all of uh, government-funded research. So usually I give a little bit more of a wrap-up at the end of the show. Uh, Today I'm going to cede the stage to Ayn Rand, who I can safely say is going to give a a bit more articulate wrap-up than I usually do, just to, to say the absolute least. But I want to read some quotes. And I'm going to read quite a few paragraphs from this essay because I really want to uh, stress to you how important an essay this is in explaining this modern controversy, uh, and then hopefully you'll you'll read the essay, the essay in its entirety. So here you go. Here are some here are some selected paragraphs. Why do? And she's talking about establishment views that aren't true. Why do the falsehoods linger on unchallenged, like a cloud of dust over the rubble? Philosophy affects education, and a false philosophy can cripple men's minds in childhood. But it cannot cripple them all, nor does it cripple most men irreparably. So what becomes of those who manage to survive? Why are they not heard from? What, except physical force, can silence active minds? The answer to this last question is nothing. Only the use of physical force can protect falsehoods from challenge and perpetuate them. Only the intrusion of force into the realm of the intellect, i.e., only the action of government, can silence an entire nation. But then how does the cultural wreckage maintain its power over the United States? There is no governmental repression or suppression of ideas in this country. And then she goes on to elaborate on that. Anyone is still free to say, write, and publish anything he pleases. Yet men keep silent while their culture is perishing from an entrenched, institutionalized epidemic of mediocrity. It is not possible that mankind's intellectual stature has shrunk to this extent. If you find it puzzling, the premise to check is the idea that governmental repression is the only way a government can destroy the intellectual life of a country. It is not. There is another way governmental encouragement. Governmental encouragement does not order men to believe that the false is true, it merely makes them indifferent to the issue of truth or falsehood. And then she goes on to discuss a specific example, which is really interesting in the field of psychology, with a a psychologist she was very critical of named B.F. Skinner. Uh, But then she goes on to make the more general point. It is generally known that most universities now depend on government research projects as one of their major sources of income. The government grants to those senior researchers establish every recipient as an unofficially official power. It is his influence, his ideas, his theories, his preferences in faculty hiring that will come to dominate the school in a silent, unadmitted way. What what debt-ridden college administrator would dare antagonize the carrier of the bonanza? Now observe that these grants were given to senior researchers, that they were plums. Earlier she discusses how um, a New Republic article described these grants to B.F. Skinner and others as these special things only to senior senior people. Um, How would Washington bureaucrats, or congressmen for that matter, know which scientists to encourage? The safest method is to choose men who have achieved some sort of reputation. whatever their reputation, where, Whether their reputation is deserved or not, whether their achievements are valid or not, whether they rose by merit, pull, publicity, or accident, are questions which the awarders do not and cannot consider. When personal judgment is inoperative or forbidden, men's first concern is not how to choose but how to justify their choice. This will necessarily prompt committee members, bureaucrats, and politicians to gravitate toward, quote, prestigious names, unquote. The result is to help establish those already established, i.e., to entrench the status quo. Now, there's even far more in this article, and I think it's just a goldmine. I, I, again, can't recommend highly enough reading this article, because more than any other article I've ever read, it sheds light on how wrong ideas can become entrenched. And and if you want, oh, Dr. Michaels brought up a couple of examples, for instance, in the, the realm of food, of how certain things can become entrenched. And I, I think that's a really powerful area. And it, it what occurs to me in the realm of food is something like the food pyramid, which in my reading essentially prescribes human beings the diet that we use to fatten cattle. And this helped contribute to the increase of obesity. And yet all the nutritional authorities were on board. And Most importantly, no one really publicly challenged it. And why not? Well, because you have this whole government indirectly influencing everything. And so to go against the establishment is this enormous risk with very little chance of an effective payoff, because it's really hard to fight the system. So what Rand advocates is a system in which you have a separation of government and ideas, of government and science. And that way, each individual has to compete in the marketplace of ideas on his own merits. He can't force anyone to agree with him. Uh, and that leads, that is really the the system that led to the flourishing of science in this country, the flourishing of science in, in Europe, uh, and can lead to the flourishing of science once again. And with that, it's time to wrap up the power hour. I hope you learned something and if you didn't think it's important information, please tell your friends and colleagues about it whatever way you can. Facebook, Twitter, email, phone calls, smoke signals, anything short of spam. And more than ever, we're bringing out a bunch of web resources. I mentioned before, www.alexepstein.com. It's a Facebook page, but it's also a page you can access even if you don't have Facebook. It's got all kinds of tabs on it, everything from booking me from public speaking to reading probably a hundred of my articles on energy, um, hearing my radio interviews, seeing a growing library of videos. We've got tons and tons of stuff to check out. And of course, we have... uh, we have a section for Power Hour. We also have a new Power Hour website, which you can get to at powerhour.alexepstein.com. So definitely check all those out. And as always, if you ever need to contact me, Alex at alexepstein.com Tell your friends, spread the word. It'll all be great. I guess that's all we got for this month. Next month, we'll be back with another interesting topic, another great guest. And until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour is a T.J. DeSantis production. Its content is intended for private use only.